Hi everyone and welcome to the This Week in British History podcast. Before we get started, this is an audio version of the YouTube series This Week in British History, which is available on the British History Tours uh, uh, channel. So just to let you know that if you want to watch so that you also get the visuals, there is a link in the show notes on this podcast, which will give you the link to YouTube. But I've also recorded this, so in a way that I hope you can enjoy it fully also as a podcast. All right, let's get started. Hello fellow history lovers, welcome back to my channel. My name is Philippa Lacey Brewell from British History Tours and this is the This Week in British History series. This week we're looking at events which happened between the 4th and the 10th of May. We are continuing to look at the day-by-day events in the downfall of Anne Boleyn as promised. So we're continuing on from last week and we'll be carrying on next week. We, but I'm also going to cover two other events which happened in this week. The Battle of Tewkesbury, uh, part of the Wars of the Roses that happened in 1471 and also Victory in Europe Day which we have celebrated this week the 75th anniversary of. The Battle of Tewkesbury took place on the 4th of May 1471 and this was the decisive or final battle of the Wars of the Roses which put Edward IV back on the throne for the rest of his life. Now Edward had won at the Battle of Barnet on the 14th of April which we covered in a previous episode and at that battle Warwick the Kingmaker had died. So the Lancastrian forces were now being led by Margaret of Anjou and her son, the Prince of Wales. Henry VI was imprisoned already in the Tower of London and Margaret and her son landed at Weymouth on the south coast. They force marched their troops up England, hoping to get across into Wales to gain more support. They were looking for a fordable place in the river, a place to cross, but they were caught up at Tewkesbury by Edward's forces. Edward's army was organised in exactly the same fashion as it had been when they were successful at Barnet. It was divided into three sections. Edward led one, Lord Hastings led another, and Edward's brother, the Duke of Gloucester, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, the future Richard III, led the third division. Battle commenced in the morning of the 4th of May 1471 and Edward's forces went immediately on the attack. Sprays of arrows rained down on the Lancastrian forces and the division headed by the Duke of Somerset failed to hold its position, so much so that Somerset just had to give the order to attack. Somerset's division ran headlong into that being headed up by Edward IV, which managed to force them back up the hill towards their own lines. At this point, 200 pikemen, which had been stationed in a nearby wood by Edward and told to enter the battle when they saw that they could do the most um, good, if you like, or damage, depending on which way you look at it, uh, came into the battle, attacking Somerset's troops from the side. That division just dispersed. It was in disarray, which precipitated the collapse of the entire Lancastrian army on the field. Prince Edward most likely died on the battlefield as the commanders and troops scattered and tried to flee. Many, including Somerset, looked for sanctuary in nearby churches, including the Abbey Church, where Margaret possibly watched the battle. 
15th century chronicler Warkworth records Edward coming directly from the battlefield and marching to the Abbey Church, intent on killing any of his enemy that he found there. But when he reached the church, the abbot, who had been singing mass at the high altar, ran down the entire length of the Abbey Church, holding up the Holy Sacrament and pleading with the king that there would be no bloodshed in the church. But a trial two days later on the 6th of May found those who had been taken from the church and put into prison guilty of treason and they were beheaded at Tewkesbury Cross. As Edward left Tewkesbury on the 7th of May, news reached him that Queen Margaret had been tracked down along with her newly widowed daughter-in-law, Anne Neville. Full of grief and her spirit broken, Margaret was taken back to London as a prisoner. It wouldn't be too long before Margaret also found herself a widow but we're covering that story in an episode in two weeks' time. The Battle of Tewkesbury was the final and decisive battle of the Wars of the Roses, or at least this stage of the conflict. It was the last for Edward IV, but not for his younger brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who would find himself once again pitched against a Lancastrian army 14 years later, in August 1485, at Bosworth against Henry Tudor. Edward, Prince of Wales, is buried in Tewkesbury Abbey and above him on the ceiling you will see the Sons in Splendour emblem. Edward is not the only person buried there with links to the Wars of the Roses. George, Duke of Clarence, the brother of Edward IV and Richard III is also buried at Tewkesbury Abbey. And if you're lucky enough to catch it, there is a reenactment of the Battle of Tewkesbury each year, which is a fabulous weekend um, and a great day out if you can make it. Victory in Europe Day, generally known as VE Day, marks the formal acceptance by the Allies of World War II of Germany's unconditional surrender. This was war which had raged on for nearly six years, costing millions of lives. Homes have been destroyed, cities have been destroyed, families have been torn apart by the death of loved ones and huge suffering had been brought to populations around the world. With the surrender of Germany, people were relieved that the intense strain of total war was at least finally over. In towns and cities across the world, people marked the occasion with street parties, with dancing and singing. But of course, this was not the end of the conflict. The war continued in the Far East and the Pacific. Thousands of Allied servicemen were still fighting out in the Far East and thousands more were in prisoner of war camps. The war wasn't entirely over until victory in Japan, which happened in August of the same year. Now, unfortunately, the end of war didn't mean the end of the impact on people's lives of war. Shortages of food and cloth were still an issue for many, many months to come. Clothes rationing lasted until 1949 and food rationing till 1954. England was practically bankrupt after the war and post-war austerity was going to mean that conditions were going to be very difficult for a long time to come. Sources differ, but anywhere between 70 and 85 million people are believed to have died during World War II, with civilian deaths far exceeding that of military deaths. Many of these due to deliberate genocide, massacres, mass bombings, disease and starvation. As promised, we are following day by day the events in the downfall of Anne Boleyn. This week we're looking at what happened to her and the case against her between the 4th and the 10th of May. 
On the 4th of May, we find her in prison in the tower. Anne had been in a state of fear and hysteria since she was brought to the tower two days earlier. Cromwell had given instruction to the constable of the tower, Sir William Kingston, to report back on all of Anne's ramblings, of which there were many while she was in this state. Not only was Anne's every move being recorded and reported on, but she had no supporters around her. Her ladies-in-waiting had all been appointed by Thomas Cromwell and were ladies unsympathetic to her. Her ladies-in-waiting included Sir William Kingston's own wife, Mary Scrope, who was happily reporting back on Anne's frequent ramblings. On the 4th of May, Anne complained to Kingston about the cruel treatment she was receiving. She was beginning to wonder, perhaps this was a test from Henry. Perhaps she held out hope that the Henry she once knew was still there, the one that had moved heaven and earth to marry her. So surely he, he would want her to be innocent. And once he was reassured of that, um, he would also see how much she still loved him, how much she was still true to him. She went on to talk about the good deed she's done and that even if death was to come to her, that surely she would have a place in heaven. On the 5th of May, there were two further arrests. Sir Thomas Wyatt, known for his poetry, and Sir Richard Page, who was a gentleman of the Privy Council. That took the total of men in the Tower of London caught up in this plot against Anne to seven. So just to recap, the men now in the Tower, we had Mark Smeaton, who was the court musician. He was the first one to be arrested. We have Sir Henry Norris, who was one of the closest friends to Henry VIII and the chief gentleman of his privy chamber. George Boleyn, Lord Rochford, Anne's own brother. They were all, they were the first three to be arrested. Then we have Sir Francis Weston, um, arrested after Anne's ramblings, which I covered last week, and Sir William Brereton, who was a bit of an odd one because he was the only one who's not actually uh, known to have been within Anne's sort of inner circle. And then obviously today, on this day, we had Sir Thomas Wyatt and um, Sir Richard Page. Not only was Henry going to lose his wife in these events, but he was looking at losing a lot of his close personal friends. Um, another man who was questioned on the 5th of May, but he wasn't arrested, was a man called Sir Francis Bryan. And he was already, he'd already aligned his uh, loyalties with the pro-Seymour, anti-Berlin faction. So it's likely that his arrest was more for show. Perhaps Cromwell was beginning to think that it would look a little bit suspicious if everyone who was questioned was arrested. So perhaps this was a bit of a setup. It doesn't seem to be that Sir Francis Bryan was in any real danger. And the fact that he was the one who delivered the news of Anne's condemnation in uh, after her trial directly to Jane Seymour really indicates that his loyalties were already well aligned. Sir Francis Bryan was also going to be the one who took over the position of Chief Gentleman of the Privy Chamber, which had been left vacant by Henry Norris. This is the day that the famous From the Lady in the Tower letter was supposed to have been written from Anne to her husband Henry. This letter, it's eloquent, it's familiar in tone, it's very Anne and it gets its name from the fact that on the top of the uh, letter it was annotated from the lady in the tower. 
and begins with an admission of not understanding why she should even be in the tower and therefore she couldn't answer to whatever it is she was supposed to have done. She goes on to declare her loyalty and her affection to the king. Further on, she mentions that she is aware that he has affections for another. She pleads with him to give her a lawful and fair trial. Because in a following paragraph, she chastises him and she says, but if you have already determined of me and that not only my death, but my infamous slander, then I desire of God that he will pardon your great sin therein. And goes on to express that when they both become, both come before God in judgment, it will be her who is sufficiently cleared. In her final paragraph, she shows incredible mastery of the situation which had unfolded with blinding speed. She pleads that the innocent souls of those poor gentlemen caught up in this action against her be spared and if that anyone should fall, it should be her alone. She also mentions her daughter, Princess Elizabeth, the future Queen Elizabeth, who was only two years old at this time, just showing, like any loving mother, that her daughter, her child, was on her mind. The letter's authenticity has been debated over the centuries, but many modern historians believe that it is genuine and that many of the, uh, the pieces of evidence for it being a fake can easily be countenanced. If Anne did write this letter, then it is superbly eloquent in contrast to this hysterical ramblings that she'd made on the previous two days. Uh, but it is so Anne. How could anyone else have written it? Um, if they did, they expressed her character perfectly. Um, perhaps the act of writing this letter to her husband brought her into a calmer state, um, one, one in which she could better craft what she actually wanted to say. Assuming it was genuinely written or more likely dictated by Anne, it was found in Cromwell's papers, which indicates that it never reached Henry. So we can only be left wondering that if it had, would it have made a difference? On the 7th of May, Anne's chaplain, William Latimer, was searched on his return uh, to England from the continent. He was on errands for Anne and fortunately, nothing was found which would compromise either him or Anne, which was lucky because on previous trips, he had brought back reformist text for her. On the same day, Anne asked if her almoner, John Skip, would be permitted to come and visit her um, at the tower. She was looking now for, she needed spiritual comfort. When we move on to the 8th of May, we know with the power of hindsight what happened and we can kind of unpick events and look at them uh, as if they were an inevitable pathway to uh, an already defined outcome. However, the people at People at the time also seemed to have an incredible understanding of what was happening. Letters were being sent to those with the power to redistribute estates and positions that would be up for grabs should the men be found guilty. On the 9th of May, King Henry VIII called a council meeting at Hampton Court Palace. We don't know what was discussed, but it would be logical to think that Cromwell was there with a report of how the investigation into Anne and her accomplices was going. 
Also on this day, orders were given to the Sheriff of London to assemble a jury the following day to rule on the offences which had, which had allegedly happened at Whitehall and Hampton Court Palace. The 10th of May was the date for the Middlesex indictment. Middlesex was the county, or is the county, in which London uh, is situated. And the jury heard the indictments against Henry Norris, George Boleyn, William Brereton, Francis Weston and Mark Smeaton. And the charges used lewd terms designed to shock and disgust those present and those who would hear about the detail of the crimes that the Queen and her, these men at court were supposed to have committed. The charges that talked about Anne, following daily her frail carnal lust, drawing the King's daily and familiar servants into base conversations and kisses, touchings, gifts and other infamous incitations, and that several had yielded to her vile provocations. Now, to read this now, it's easy to sort of scoff at how ludicrous the charges sound. There's simply no way that Anne, as Queen, could have got away with this with so many men and it not have been noticed earlier. It gets even more ridiculous when you hear the dates that the alleged crimes were supposed to have taken place. So the timescales, again, the Queen was supposed to have been getting away with these um, sexual encounters with men close to the King for months and months and months and months. Also, if anyone had looked into the dates in any detail, they would be able to immediately uh, show that the Queen wasn't actually at the location that the crime was supposed to have taken place at on the date that was given. So there was a cynical addition to each of the dates, which just read various other times, both before and after. But it didn't stop there, because apparently jealous of each other, Anne was trying to keep the men happy by promising that she would marry one of them after the king's death. Now this was uh, the addition which made this even more serious. They were talking about the king's death in a way that made it sound like they were plotting the king's death. Not only was Anne supposed to be one of the most powerful and persuasive seductresses that ever lived, but her lust was so insatiable that she would even go so far as to seduce and lure her own brother into her bed. She kept multiple lovers, whom supposedly knew all about each other, managing their jealousy with gifts and promises of potential marriage, all, all underneath the nose of the king and the rest of the court. The charges may have been designed to engender shock and disgust at Anne and the supposed, uh, her supposed accomplices, but also, let's face it, it was quite obvious to any observer that the fates of the men were sealed and for a reason not disclosed in court, so would anyone actually pipe up against them? So the indictments read were enough to send the men to trial, which was a good job seen as the message to Sir William Kingston, Constable of the Tower, to bring up the men for trial in two days time had already been sent.
Thank you for watching this episode of This Week in British History. If you've liked it, please give it a thumbs up. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel and that you ring the bell, so or to click the bell, whatever you have to do with the bell, uh, to get notifications of new episodes. And if you didn't catch last week's uh, part of Anne Boleyn's downfall, then please go and have a look at that. I'll put a uh, link somewhere either here or in the show notes to last week's episode so that you can um, catch up on that. But if you can't wait a full week for next week's episode, also come and find me on Facebook and Instagram. And if you're stuck indoors still, um, like we are, and you fancy doing a virtual tour, then please check out my virtual tour series. All right, take care, stay safe, everyone. I'll see you next week. <laughs>